You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Thank you, folks. Great time this morning. I want to welcome everyone again to Queen City Church here on this sunny July the 19th. 2020, and what a year it has been. Yes, yes. Amen. Have a few little amens. A couple of folks here. Well, we're going to have communion this morning, and um, hopefully, those of you who are watching by live stream will be prepared to do this. That would be good. I'm going to share a few minutes, and then Andy Squires will come and take us through that that part of our worship experience this morning. I am calling this morning uh, by the title of All These Things, All These Things. And my verse comes out of Genesis 42, 36, and this is um, all couched in the story of the life of Joseph and Jacob and the great adventures they had and misadventures they had. But Genesis 42:36 is a statement that Jacob makes, and it goes this way. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. And then he makes this bold statement. All these things are against me. And I would like to read that one more time. All these things are against me. And so we find Jacob wrestling with uh, the affairs and the situations and circumstances of his life. And I've written here that after numerous setbacks, difficulties, family deaths, and problems, Jacob, Jacob arrived at a place in his life where he concluded this, all these things are against me. But I have this question, was that true? You may feel the same way this morning with all this going on, these, gosh, March, April, May, June, now we're in July and still wrestling with uh, COVID and all that that entails. But you may believe that. You may feel that this morning. But is it true that insurmountable ob- obstacles, everything around us is against us? And so I want us to investigate, and I want to do it through a biblical model here with Jacob and Joseph and the life of their family. But Jacob felt the weight of the world falling down upon him. Things hadn't happened to him all at once. But his weariness was from an accumulation of tragic events over the years. You could feel it. Blow after blow had descended with a devastating force. Many of his problems had had begun some 22 years earlier. His 10 oldest sons had returned from shepherding his flocks with terrible news In their hands, they presented to Jacob Joseph's bloody coat of many colors, the very symbol that he gave his son uh, because of the favor he had. Joseph was his favorite and beloved son. So we find in Genesis 37 several verses here. I'll read them to you. You can turn to them, Genesis 37, verses 32 through 35. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's 
tunic or not. And Jacob recognized it, and he said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So the loss of Joseph was sort of the beginning of sorrows here in Jacob's life. Now, as you probably know, most people know, the more sinister aspect of Joseph's so-called death was that his brothers had sold him into slavery. Out of jealousy, they sold him into slavery. Uh, You talk about the huge dysfunctional nature of our uh, forefathers, right? Hugely dysfunctional. So their sons uh, plotted against him, sold him into slavery, killed a beast, put the blood on his coat, took it home and said, Dad, do you recognize this? And so for really almost a quarter of a century, the entire family, especially the ten, the ten brothers, lived in a place of huge deception with their father. Because Jacob was, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, born to Rachel, his favorite wife. If you read through the scriptures, you'll see that uh, Jacob actually had several wives and Rachel was his favorite. The loss of Joseph was almost more than he could bear. And that's, that's something worth asking ourselves. Have we been through before things we could almost not bear? And I think most anyone who's lived any stretch of time has been through something and they, they ask themselves, can I really, can I take this? Can I bear this? So that's where we find, um, that's where we find Joseph, the law of, sorry, Jacob, the loss of Joseph was almost more than he could stand. Then his wife, Rachel, after giving birth to their 12th, uh, Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin, she passed away. And so Benjamin became um, Jacob's favorite son, particularly after losing Joseph, if you can follow this. Well, then even the weather patterns turned against Jacob. He found himself in the second year of a devastating famine so severe that he could scarcely feed his flocks or his family. But he had heard that there was grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons there to purchase food. We see this in Genesis 42. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. That's uh, verse 3 of Genesis 42. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. So, off to Egypt go the ten sons of Jacob. And unknown to them, the Egyptian high official in charge of all the food was none other than who? Joseph, the son that Jacob thought was dead, the brother that the ten brothers had completely lost touch with. And then here's what happens at the Egyptian food bank. We find this again in Genesis 42. They come, Joseph sees his brothers, and he recognizes them. But he acted like a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, says this twice, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, 
You're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. So Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. Joseph sells him food, but he accuses them of being spies. And then we find out to prove that they were not spies, he told them they had to bring with them their youngest brother, Benjamin, to come back for more food. And then he keeps their other brother, Simeon, in Egypt as a kind of hostage. So, how would you like to be the ten brothers and have to come and explain all this to your dad? How would you like to come once more and say, well, dad, we've lost another brother, and the only way we can go back and get him is if we bring the son you love the most. How would you like to navigate that situation? wouldn't be easy to do. So here's what it says in, in the rest part, a latter part of Genesis 42. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who was lord of the land, they were speaking of Joseph that they didn't recognize, he spoke roughly to us and took us for the spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. Well, he knew how honest they were, didn't he? We're honest men, we're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you're not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Then something else complicated the situation. It happened as they emptied their food sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, and here's that verse I read at the very beginning after all of this is happening. Jacob says to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you will take Benjamin. All these things are against me. I don't know if you're able to do this at home, but why don't you just say that with me? All these things are against me. But if you follow the rest of this story, it turns out that all those things that Jacob thought were against him were actually working to his advantage. Every single thing. The famine was working to his advantage. The sending of his sons back to Egypt. The being rejected by the leader who had control of the food. and They did not know it was Joseph. But every single situation they thought Jacob felt was working against him was actually working in his favor. God was orchestrating everything for the ultimate benefit of Jacob his family, and the restoration of Joseph to all of them, as well as preserving their lives during a worldwide famine and the lineage that would produce the Messiah himself. Andy and I were talking earlier about the 
conflicts, particular racism in our age, in our day. And you can look at what's going on in our nation in two ways. This is working against us or this is working for us. This is working against us or this is working for us. And there are elements in our society that would try to make every single thing you think, every way you view, everything you see, everything you hear is one more nail in the coffin of what our country is. But in reality, for believers who have the perception of faith, they can say, no, I have a different viewpoint. I believe by the grace of God, every single thing is working in our favor. We will see this thing through. We will discover the hand of God, even in the midst of the hostility, the criticism, and the destruction. All these things are working in our favor. Now, that may be a bold proclamation, but it's the one I want to make this morning. And I make it on good foundation, the Word of God. I make it on a good foundation that it is not wise to interpret your life and life's experiences prematurely. It's not wise to interpret who you are in the middle of a problem until after there's some form of wisdom and resolution. That's not wisdom. And we need wisdom. We need insight from God himself to help us accurately understand who he is and what he's doing for us. Now you think about Joseph's life, how it unfolded. How did Joseph view his life after his restoration to his father Jacob and his 11 brothers. He had a completely different idea then than he did when he was in Potiphar's house, than he did when he was in the prison, than he did when he'd been thrown in the ditch, than he did when his brother sold him into slavery. At any one of those points, he could have had a wrong and premature understanding of what God was doing in his life. He could have not understood the momentous Reality, God was going to use to do with that life of that 17-year-old man who had been thrown in a ditch, who'd been sold into slavery, who'd been lied about by Potiphar's wife, who'd been put into prison again, and who came out to become the second ruler in all the world whose very wisdom gave him the ability to provide in a time of seven-year famine food that would feed the known world. But what would he have done in the middle if he had prematurely determined who God was and what his purpose was for his life? He would have been wrong. He would have been confused. And he could have made bad choices and made bad decisions. How did Joseph view his life toward his brothers? Was he bitter toward them? I'm sure he was. You don't get treated that way and not have bitterness, do you? Come on. Was he angry with God? Of course he was. You can't go through that kind of experience and not have feelings towards those who have mistreated you. You can't have those kinds of of misunderstandings and not feel something towards God that you're not really happy about. But I would be willing to bet he had overcome both of those as he walked through a process and God 
We live with God through process, don't we? Everything's not instantly resolved the minute we wish it was. But he did walk through it. He did continue through it. And then we have some of the most remarkable words in the whole story in the life of Joseph. And I want us to listen to these. And I quite frankly don't have a very good theological grid for some of Joseph's conclusions. All I know is these conclusions worked for Joseph. In Genesis 45, verse 3 through 8, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Now they didn't know who he was at this point. Still a mystery. They had brought Benjamin back. They were reunited with Simeon, but still did not know that this leader in Egypt was Joseph. But Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were utterly dismayed in his presence. Could you imagine the shock? 22 years. 22 years. After you had done this to your brother, and now here you are, under his authority, under his command, under his jurisdiction. And he suddenly says to them, I am Joseph. Is dad still alive? And they, they were so disturbed, he had to say to them again and again, please come near me. So they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. And I'm sure they're just staring at him. What? You're who? How would you process? I, I think, you know, I believe in the second return of Jesus. I, I believe in the bodily return of Jesus. What's going to happen when he comes? How much flip-flopping are people's lives and hearts going to do when the Son of Man appears like that. Or here's another idea. This could describe the emotion a person has who goes from death to life when they realize who God really is and what God's really like because of all the Old Testament characters. Joseph has the most in common and type with the Lord Jesus of any other person. There are over 80 similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. 80 similarities. 80 similarities. So he says that to them. Do not be grieved. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. In verse 7, he says this again. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph says that. (coughs) Excuse me. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh 
and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And so we see Joseph has to repeat himself over and over. It has to permeate his brother's heart. Joseph is alive and he doesn't hate us. No, it's not that he doesn't hate us. Joseph is alive and he loves us. No, it's not just that Joseph is alive and he doesn't hate us and he loves us. He has discovered that even though we did this evil to him, he says it was God's way, and I can't handle this theologically, but he says it was God's way of bringing bringing me to the point where I could save all of your lives and our entire family lineage. He doesn't say this. He may have understood it by revelation, and that was the lineage of the Messiah. I think about this Bible verse about Joseph. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. His branches run over the wall. And the idea I have that was Joseph was so close to the Lord and able to walk through the Lord in very damaging, difficult, embittering circumstances and manage to not be bitter and manage to have a redemptive attitude and a redemptive viewpoint And in a tremendous way, if you look at the lineage of the Messiah and the place the family household of Jacob played, because Joseph preserved their lives, it's as though his branch really does run way over the wall. Thousands of years until it lands in what? A little town of Bethlehem where his people from his family line discover they're in Mary's womb. They're now in the, in the manger, Christ the Lord. The larger Joseph, the greater Joseph, what Joseph did in part, Jesus has done in total. Don't be angry with yourselves. God sent me before you, verse 5. Verse 7, God sent me before you, says it again. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Tremendous, tremendous verses. I know this may be hard to reconcile theologically. Did God do that to him? You know, did God send the COVID? I don't believe he did. The tree of the knowledge of evil doesn't doesn't, uh, serve us. So could you blame Joseph's, were Joseph's brothers at fault for doing what they did? Were they guilty? Yes. What did Joseph say? God sent me before you. You can't figure that out. You can't figure it out. Theologically, you wrestle with that. At the end of the day, they were responsible for what they had done, but in the midst of it, God had used what they meant for evil. God used for good. And Joseph saw the hand of God in all that had befallen him. Joseph saw just like Jacob needed to see by faith that all the things he thought were against him were actually working out in his favor. And I'll say this again. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. All things don't work against us. God works them for us. And I love last several verses I want to read here is out of Romans 8. And then Andy, uh, we we have the communion. And when I'm thinking about hope, there, there, there is one simple verse in the New Testament, and that verse alone could inspire 
amazing, amazing hope. But I want to build up to it. Verse 24, Romans 8. For this is the hope of a salvation. But hope means that we must trust and wait for what is still unseen. For why would we need to hope for something we already have? So because our hope is set on what is yet to be seen, we patiently keep on on waiting for its fulfillment. Verse 26, and in a similar way, now listen to this, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us in our human frailty to empower us in our weakness. For example, at times we don't even know how to pray. Have you been there before? Or know the best things to ask for? Sure. But the Holy Spirit rises up within us to super intercede on our behalf, pleading to God with emotional sighs too deep for words. God, the searcher of the heart, knows fully our longings. Yet he also understands the desires of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit passionately pleads before God for us, his holy ones, in perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. And then here's verse 28. Here's the hope-inspiring verse. So we are convinced, Paul said, that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. I believe that one verse alone can inspire us to hope. We are convinced every detail of our lives, God is continually weaving together to fit his perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. So that's what I wanted to share this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Paul would say, and Paul, who suffered tremendously over his lifetime, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And I want to pray as Andy comes. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for insight from the scriptures. And we ask truly that you would build us up in confidence and hope to see you do everything in our lives that you have determined to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully you have your communion elements ready. Um, I've been thinking a lot about 
the world lately, as, as I'm sure most of you have, uh, it, it would be fair to say that we are truly living in crazy times. And, uh, you know, Robin was talking about needing wisdom. We really do need wisdom. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is uh, doing a work in the body of Christ right now, getting his wisdom to us. And um, maybe if you're like me, you haven't always thought about communion being a powerful thing. Um, but the Lord's teaching me really about how powerful communion is. And communion, it, it, it's, it's a mystery because in some ways, it's an expression of powerlessness. It's an expression that when you, when you partake of it, when you enter into it, we don't often feel fireworks. We don't, um, it doesn't seem like there's this real transaction happening, but, but in fact, something very, very beautiful, very wonderful and very powerful is happening. And so, um, as we, as we take it together this morning, I want you to realize my hope is that you would realize that as you enter into this, uh, this, for lack of a better word, ritual, it is a ritual beyond a ritual because it has real power attached to it. And um, the Apostle Paul, he's writing in the book of Corinthians. He says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this is such a wonderful passage right here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's, it's an interesting thing to do to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because in some ways, it is the embrace of powerlessness. It is the embrace of weakness. It's, it's saying to, to each other and to the world, we have nothing else to give you except for the death of our Lord. And this is the thing that not only we proclaim, but the thing that is inside of us and gives us life. And, and it's incredible. We are being formed by that proclamation. Amen. So why don't we do that? There's some folks in here with me this morning and they've got a little cup. And if you, if you haven't got a cup, we've got some extra cups over here, but in your homes right now, why don't we just break bread and drink the wine? And I'll, I'll pray this. Father, as we partake in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are asking you to form in us 
the wisdom that we need to walk like you in this world. And together right now, we proclaim the death of our Lord. Amen. There's a, there's a Scottish baptismal proclamation that is spoken over people in the Scottish church that I find to be so powerful. And I want to speak it over you as we close out communion and as we close out our service today. This is so wonderful. For you... Jesus Christ came into the world for you. He lived and showed God's love for you. He suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried at last. Everything is accomplished for you. He triumphed over death and rose to new life for you. He reigns at God's right hand. All of this he did for you. Though you do not yet know it. But here's the thing. Now we do. Isn't that wonderful? So I'll pray one time. We're going to close it out. We'll be back here same time next week. um, By live stream. Jesus. Precious Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father. We adore you. We love you. We thank you for your grace. For your purposes that are being made known in our lives. We ask you for this week that it would be directed and guided by you and you alone. Every other voice that would try to direct us, Lord. We say no to those things and we offer our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to you and to you alone. In Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. See you next week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.